Thank you so much. Good to be together. Welcome. I just underlined that the uh, the orange goodie bags have mints, not mints, in them. Just in case uh, you were confused, we're not giving away free kind of bolognese or anything. Though that might be an idea. I don't know. Maybe maybe that will catch on more. I'm not sure. But anyway, welcome to you. Great to be together. And uh, before we kind of get into the Word of God, I want to just quickly flag up one event that is happening here in December, and it's called our Prophetic Development School. Um, So we are putting on a three-day training school for those that particularly feel like they want to grow and develop in the prophetic or around intercession and worship. And we've uh, found great value in gathering uh, smaller groups together, smaller than a conference, a kind of a training classroom style, just for kind of activation, training, uh, connection with other like-minded people. And so that is happening in December. Some of uh, my friends from different parts of the country are coming to join me to teach on that. It's going to be a great, great time. So if you've got a particular interest in growing in the prophetic, then uh, please take a look at those flyers. You can get them at the back of the room from Manjeet, uh, or you can take a look on Online and you can sign up. Do that as soon as you can just to make sure you can get a space. That is the plug over. Awesome. Well, I'm going to pray and then we're just going to get straight into things. So let's, let's seek Jesus. Ah, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, we so honor and welcome your presence here this morning. Lord, thank you that we gather to a great God. Thank you that you're always ready to rumble. Lord, whatever season of life we're in, Lord, you are ready. Lord, you are raring to go. Lord, you are alert and ready for action this morning. Lord, ready to touch hearts and meet needs and change minds and intervene in our circumstances. Thank you that you're a living God. Thank you that our God is no longer in a grave, but you are alive forevermore. Thank you that we can say with confidence this morning, death has been defeated. Death has been defeated, dead and buried. Lord, we thank you that we have an utterly victorious Savior whose name is Jesus, who is crowned with many crowns, who is the Lord of all glory, who rules the cosmos in perfect justice and peace. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, all our anxieties are really irrational because our God is on the throne today. Thank you that you are our God, King Jesus. And we thank you that, Lord, in this room, people from many different nations can say Jesus is our King. Jesus is our king. We gather to Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. Oh, we love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. And God, we come to your word with faith today. We come to your word and we we say we expect you to speak to us through your word. We expect you to uh, slap us around the metaphorical face with your word. We we expect, Lord, for you to do us good through your word. And Lord, whether we're here this morning, maybe for the very first time, or maybe this is the thousandth time we sat in this kind of a meeting, God, I ask, Holy Spirit, will you come and reveal yourself? Come close, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for each one of us. You are the God we've all been waiting for. There is no one like you. There is no one like you, King Jesus. Just for a moment, just where you're seated, just come to Jesus where you you are, just in your seat. Just love him. Just tell him you love him. You know, faith is belief plus expectancy. It's not just believing something's true. It's expecting something good is going to happen. So I just want you to stir your own faith, just where you're seated right now. Just start to talk to Jesus in your own heart. Say, Jesus, I love you. Come and do me good with your word. Come and change me. I'm ready to meet with you this morning. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. 
Oh, we love you, Jesus. You're so beautiful. Amen. All right, well, we are in the middle of an Acts series, which is looking at a book in the New Testament. It was written by a doctor called Dr. Luke. Funnily enough, he wrote another book called Luke. And Acts is the kind of sequel. It's part two, and it's what happens after Jesus rose from the dead. And it's the story of the early church, the first church that really ever was in existence. And it's a, a brilliant, breathtaking story of what happens when Jesus rocks up in a community. So I'd encourage you to read that, and we're going to kind of turn to Acts chapter 2 in just a moment. But uh, if you are here for the first time, church should come with a health warning. (laughs) You know, when you come to church, it could seriously change your life. I mean, it really could. You never know what's going to happen when you encounter Jesus in the church. And that's what the story of the early church is. It's the story of people encountering the real, authentic Jesus amongst amongst his people. I remember the very first time that I came to the King's Arms. I was 18 years old at the time. And uh, I was uh, living in another part of the country, but I was about to move to America. And I happened to be in Bedford for a couple of weeks. And we heard about this kind of raw, edgy church that met in Bedford. And it It didn't have a morning meeting. I mean, who heard of such things? A church with no morning meeting. I mean, that in itself was radical enough. And but then we we got there, they met in a school hall called Dame Alice. How many of you were here in the Dame Alice days of King's Arms? Number of us. It was in this kind of school hall, there were these kind of colored lights at the back. I think someone had a smoke machine. You know, it was kind of very kind of edgy and different. There were kind of you know, really kind of disturbing looking people standing at the back of the room smoking and looking like they wanted to mug me. Like, there was this kind of like, this, anything could happen in this meeting. I think Damien Miller was probably leading worship. He was probably about 12 years old at the time, still going strong. You know, and it was this, that was this kind of raw, edgy, gosh, what's going to happen in this meeting? And there was a half-time break where we had donuts. Right. I mean, again, who wants to bring those days back? Half-time break with donuts. You know, if you're here in the post-donut era, I can only apologize. Those are happy days. My kids ate a lot of donuts in the three months they were here while the donuts were still on offer. And, uh, and then in the second half of the meeting, I was kind of just sitting in my seat. No one really knew me. And then this team of four people came to the front of the church and just began to pick people out of the room and ask them to stand. And they just began to prophesy over them. And the very first person they picked was me. <laughs> <laughs> to my great surprise. And a lady called Philippa just pointed at me. And she said, there's a young man sitting at the back there. Could you just stand, please? And so I stood thinking, what, and what on earth is going to happen now? And she just said, I've got the word of the Lord for you. She said, God has set you apart to be a wise master builder. She said, you are going to build on your father's heritage. The word of the Lord to you is Solomon. You are going to build on what your father David built. You're going to build a habitation for the glory and the presence of God. What you build, he will be pleased to inhabit because God is setting you apart as a wise master builder. I mean, it was literally, it was a, it was a moment that changed my life. I mean, it literally did. I wasn't expecting it. I didn't really come in uh, kind of thinking that that would happen. And yet suddenly when I encountered Jesus in the church, my life changed. And that's what church should be like. That's what the early church was like. 
You, you never quite knew what was going to happen because there was this raw, edgy, dynamic life to it. And they didn't have donuts, and they didn't have PA systems, and they didn't have lights, and they didn't have PowerPoint presentations. But they had the presence of God in a way that just electrified everything that happened. And so when you came into, into contact with the early church, lives got changed. And so as you read in Acts chapter 2, as the crowds hear the very, very first sermon that was ever preached on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, lives immediately begin to change on the spot. Here's what we read in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. This is in response to Peter's sermon. It says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, even those in Bedford in 2017, for all whom the Lord our God will call. is for all of you. And with many other words, Peter warned them and pleaded, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is life in the early church. Now, just quickly, I want you to notice three things happen when people encountered Jesus in the church. Firstly, it says here, people were cut to the heart. Sounds painful, doesn't it? It probably was. I'm going to say a little bit more about that in a moment. But they were cut to the heart as they heard the truth about Jesus. Something shifted inside of them and they began to change. The second thing that happens is that they repent and they get baptized. Now, this is the normal entry point into the kingdom of God. Is that you believe in Jesus, you repent, and you get baptized in water in the Holy Spirit. That is like the normal Christian birth. That's how you get born again into the kingdom of God. You believe what Jesus says and you repent. Now, repent is the word metanoia. Now, the word metanoia doesn't mean I shed a tear in a meeting. It doesn't even mean I put a hand up to say I'd like to follow Jesus. It doesn't say I felt a little bit of sorrow. Now, repentance can include all of those things. But repentance, metanoia, actually means change the way you think. So when it says they repented, they changed the way they, they thought. And, and, and their response was, now that I believe in Jesus, I forsake my old ways of thinking and I take on a new belief system, the belief system of Jesus. What he says is true is now what I'm taking on board. I repent. It's like I was heading towards Cambridge, but now I'm heading towards Oxford. Okay, I, I've, I've done a U-turn. This was the direction I was going, but because I believe in Jesus... I'm heading a different way now. I'm thinking different thoughts. (laughs) I'm shaping my life by what he now says is true. That is what repentance is. And the first evidence that repentance had taken place was baptism in water. A good old dunking in the baptismal tank. (laughs) This is the first outward sign of an inward change. Now you've got to understand that baptism is more than just a symbolic act, it's a prophetic act. It's part of becoming a Christian. This is how you become a Christian. You repent and you get baptized. That's how it happens. (laughs) This is a picture of me getting baptized. I was a little 12-year-old. Here's 12-year-old Phil with big hair and a Genesis (laughs) t-shirt. 
as my, my dad baptizing me. I asked my dad uh, earlier this week, I said, can you remember who the other guy baptizing me was on the other side? And neither of us could. So I'm really sorry. If you're listening to this and you baptize me, thank you so much. Um, but baptism, something happens when you get baptized. It's an outward sign of an inward change. And you've got to understand, in the context of the early church, to get baptized publicly was a massively costly, sacrificial thing. Because to be baptized was saying, I'm actually no longer thinking, I'm, I'm no longer following, a, following a, a, a Judaistic faith. I'm now following Jesus. I, I am, I'm coming out of something and into something else. And if you were a Jew, that probably meant almost certain ostracization from your family. It meant being disinherited. It meant potentially death. Getting baptized was a serious thing. But it was incredibly costly. And maybe for some of us, maybe you come from a cultural background where to be baptized publicly for Jesus is also an incredibly costly thing for you in your family. Maybe some of you have had to walk through that. For many of us, it doesn't quite carry the same cost. The cost is as much as I need to stand up in front of a room who are all for me and love me and get baptized. That is the cost for some of us. But let me just say, if you've not been baptized, this is the normal Christian birth. Be baptized. Be baptized. Because it's an outward sign of the inward change. And in that moment, something prophetic happens. And this is the normal Christian birth. Thirdly, the third thing that happens here is, it says 3,000 were added. 3,000 were added. Added. Now, that word added is a really, really critical word. It, it doesn't say 3,000 began to consume religious goods and services. It doesn't say 3,000 began to watch Christian TV in the comfort of their own homes. It doesn't say 3,000 just gathered occasionally for a meeting. It says 3,000 were added. One plus one equals two. They joined something. They became part of something. They belonged to something. They were added to it. And the evidence that they were added to it is in the very next verse in 42. It says they began to devote themselves to certain things. How do you know if you're added to a local church? You begin to devote yourselves to certain things. That's what being added looks like. And here's what we read, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So we're going to look at three things that we're devoted to, and then the amazing Simon Dwight is going to carry on next week. On. So it's going to be good. Here's the first thing that they devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching. And really this is another way of saying they began to devote themselves to a different set of truths. A different set of truths. Jesus' truths. And this is exactly what they got from the apostles. What was the apostles' teaching? They passed on what they'd learned from Jesus. That was the apostles' teaching. What they heard from Jesus, they passed on. And so when he says they devoted themselves, they devoted themselves to a different outlook and way of thinking. And how many of you know that sometimes the truth hurts? <laughs> sometimes the truth hurts. And that's why it says in Acts 2 earlier, it says when they heard Peter, they were cut to the heart. Because sometimes when you begin to hear the truth about what Jesus think, thinks, it hurts. The truth hurts. I remember once we were doing a Bible study as a family, and the 
Bible study of that particular day was speak the truth to one another in love. Speak the truth to one another in love. Now, a good rule of thumb is you're not really loving someone unless you tell them the truth, but don't tell the truth to someone unless you really love them. Now, it's a good, just remember those two things. Those two things go together. Truth and love should always go together. Sometimes we just want to deliver the truth, but not much love. Okay, but they go together. It's like ham and cheese. They always go together. All right, it's really important. And so we're doing this, we're doing this Bible study, speak the truth to one another in love. And we thought, I know, why don't we do a bit of 360 degree feedback to one another as a family? So we'll just, we'll, we'll just maybe share some truth that we need to hear. And so the way that we did this is that we said, right, whoever is sitting on your left around our dining room table, you've got absolute freedom to say one thing that you think needs to change in that person's life. Just try that in your families at home, okay? It's a freebie. Try that over your dinner table today. So one thing. And, um, and so we started to go around the table. Now, Lauren, my daughter, she had me. I was sitting to her left. And so she, she said, Dad, she said, you're spending an awful lot of time looking at Sky Sports on your phone at the moment. And she says, I feel a bit neglected. I was like, okay, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I'm sure this is a good idea. <laughs> but how many of you know, sometimes the truth hurts. Yeah. And I'm, I made some changes. And then we went around the room. Sam had uh, my wife, Carol, sitting to his left. And, he, and she was going through a particularly busy season at that time. She was doing about three people's jobs. And she was just, she'd just joined a training course. And all sorts of stuff was going on. And Sam said to her, he said, uh, you know, you used to be the life and soul of our home. You used to bring such joy in life, but at the moment I just feel like you're tired all the time and I feel like you're grumpy all the time. Ouch! But we made some changes. We made some changes because sometimes the truth hurts. And when you become a Christian and a disciple of Jesus, you devote yourselves to learning what Jesus thinks. And if you don't occasionally read the Bible in a way that slaps you around the face and challenges your preconceptions, you're not really reading the Bible. If the Bible doesn't occasionally challenge your viewpoint or your way of life or your priorities, you're not really living by this. This should from time to time smack you around the face and think, oh my gosh, I need to make a change. That's what the truth does. And the early church was devoted to the truth. And ultimately, we don't get to define what truth is. Jesus does. The highest value of truth in our culture right now is tolerance, which is be kind and nice to everybody and accept everything. How many of you know if everything is true, nothing is true? There is one arbiter of truth, and his name is Jesus. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the living, breathing word of God. You want to know it's true? Look at Jesus. What did he say? What did he teach? He is the standard and arbiter of truth. He gets gets to say so on what we think about sexuality, on what we think about finance, on how we work our families and our relationships, our priorities in our life. He is the one that sets the bar on what truth looks like. The Word of God does that. Hebrews 4.12 says this, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Is the Bible judging the thoughts and the attitudes of your heart? 
Charles Spurgeon, who was a very famous preacher in London back in the day, he was once asked to defend the Bible, and he looked rather confused. He said, defend the Bible? He said, I would rather defend an uncaged lion. Because this book is living and inactive. It's God's living word. Are you devoting yourself to truth? I remember a time when I was at university and a friend had recently told me their story about how they'd suffered uh, sexual abuse for many, many years in their life. Uh, and I remember just being absolutely heartbroken over what my friend had shared with me. And I just couldn't shake it. I couldn't get it off my mind. And I remember the first year at my university, as I, I was in halls of residence, and I just couldn't get this thing off my head. And to be honest, I just felt absolutely hopping mad. That's how I felt inside. I felt angry. I wanted to hurt someone. I wanted to find that person that had done that, and I wanted to hurt them. Anyone ever felt like that? I mean, I just was angry on the, on the inside. I just wanted vengeance. And that's my, my mind, you know when your mind starts to just go around the scenarios of what you'd do if you met that person? You ever done that? Oh my gosh, I had so many scenarios and what ifs. You know, if I'm, all that was going on on the inside of me. And I was just, it was starting to eat me up. And I was, just, I was working through the book of Job at the time, and I remember just in my halls of residence reading Job, my daily reading for one particular day, it read this. It said, do not long for the night time. Don't long to drag people away from their homes. Beware of turning to evil, which you seem to prefer to affliction. I was like, I was just skewered by the Holy Spirit. I just thought... Jesus, help me. Help me to live by your truth. Help me not be someone who wants to repay evil with evil. Help me to be someone who doesn't want to drag people out of their beds and get vengeance. Jesus, that alone belongs to you. You alone are the God of justice. And it was a change moment, a profound change moment where God changed my heart by what he said was right. That's what the word of God should be doing in your life. It should be challenging you and rubbing up against you and bringing change. That's what repentance looks like. And just a note on this. You know, when the believers were cut to the heart, when those hearers were cut to the heart, there's a great difference between being cut to the heart through condemnation and being cut to the heart through conviction. You understand there's a big difference. Romans 8.1 says, Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, when we hear the word of God preached as truth, it doesn't come with condemnation. Condemnation essentially says, you are something wrong. It pushes you under the water. But conviction says you're too good to live like this, and it lifts you out of the water. That's the difference between the two. And so the word of God does convict us. It never condemns us. It pulls us up into Jesus' way of living and Jesus' way of thinking. That is the difference. And so here's just one suggestion. You know, I would just encourage you to read the Word of God just regularly and often. Regularly and often. One of our discipleship tools is called Stop and Read the Word. And there are just these four simple steps to reading the Word of God. Number one is just, you know, what does it say? Read the Bible and just read what it says on the page. And at this stage, actually, it's not about even being able to understand it. Just read it. How many of you know that you don't always remember what you read in the Bible? I mean, I can't remember what I read in the Bible, you know, five or six days ago. I can hardly remember yesterday, to be honest. I can't remember this morning, okay? Our memory is, is a funny thing. 
You don't always remember what you read in the Bible, and sometimes we think, gosh, is this really doing me any good? I just feel like I can't retain the information. Am I really learning anything? Listen, reading the Word of God regularly and often is like having three meals a day. I can't remember what meal I had seven days ago, but I tell you, it's still doing my body good. And so when you read the Word of God, it is still doing you good, whether you realize it or not, because reading the Bible is a spiritual exercise, not just a physical one. Something happens when you read the Bible. There is a spiritual transaction that takes place. Scripture calls it washing your mind with the Word of God. Something happens when you read the Scriptures. It washes you. That's why Smith Wigglesworth, he, he, was, he once said this. He said, listen, the reason I don't read newspapers is because after I read a newspaper, I feel dirtier than when I went in. The reason I read the Bible is after I read it, I feel cleaner than when I went in. Because the Word of God has a cleansing, renewing, spiritualized effect in our lives. So read what it says. That's W. And then O is just make some observations. Sometimes that's in the form of questions. Oh my gosh, what does that mean? Okay, that might be your question. He said what? Oh my goodness. Do, I, do we really believe that? I mean, often when you, if you read the Bible properly you'll have a whole bunch of questions, won't you? Well, some of you have never read the Bible before, clearly. <laughs> you will have questions when you read the Word of God. Do we, is, that, is that what we still believe? Do we still do that? I mean, do we still do kind of sacrifices at the seventh hour and the this sun and blah, blah, blah? Do we still do that? Is that still relevant? What about the Old Testament? I mean, when you read the Bible, it should provoke questions. So when you read it, write down your questions and then ask Steve Wilson. and he'll, <laughs> he, will, he will answer all your questions perfectly. You know, I remember when, when I used to be a young person and we used to go to these kind of, kind of youth camps, uh, we always used to ask, I used to ask my theologian friends for just really annoying, irritating questions to ask, just because that was fun in those days. So, you know, questions like, you know, did Adam have a belly button? I still don't know the answer to that question. You know, who were the Nephilim? Okay, some of you don't know who the Nephilim is, nor do I, but it's in Genesis chapter 6. Who, who were the Nephilim? I don't know. What is the intermediate state of the unregenerate dead? I don't know. Again, Steve knows the answers, so come and ask him afterwards. But make some observations about what you're reading. Don't read it passively. Read it actively. And then start to investigate some answers. Next, R, what does it reveal? What does the Word of God show you? Is it showing you? When you read it, is it showing you something about yourself or something about God? Make some observations. And then D, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> How does it change you? You know, I was, I was reading one of my journal entries this last week. I was reading Philippians 4. And that particular day, I was feeling pretty anxious. And this is what I read. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So I read that. I read the word of God. And then I began to make some observations. When I'm feeling anxious, Scripture says I should pray with thanksgiving. That reveals something about his kingdom. It reveals something that actually thanksgiving shifts anxiety. Thanksgiving shifts fear. That's the way his economy works. So what am I going to do about that? Well, I'm going to start giving thanks for some things. And I began to write them down. And I just wrote six things down. I said, I wrote a prayer. I said, Father, in my anxiety, I bring my thanks and requests, trusting that you hear me and will answer. Today, I'm thankful for, number one, the opportunity to serve in such a great church family 
with such great people. Number three, number two, the chance to lead in, in an apostolic family and bring the influence that I can. Number three, that God's power is made perfect in my weakness. Number four, for Carol, my wife, and for her love. Number five, for the blessings poured out on me through my children. And number six, for the anonymous gift we received at the weekend. And I tell you, reading the word of God, doing what it said, began to shift something. Devote yourselves to truth. Devote yourselves to truth. Here's the second thing they devoted themselves to. It was family. It says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, that word fellowship, again, in the Greek is the word koinonia, which means the partnership of community. That's what they gave themselves to, the partnership of community, which again underlines for us that the church fundamentally is not an organization, it's a family. That's what the church is. It should be and it feel like a family. That's what they were joining, a place where they had deep connection with other people. I want to suggest to you that you cannot find your purpose until you find your people. You can't find your purpose until you find your people. There's something about what God has called you to do as an individual that can only find its greatest place of flourishing when you get connected with other people. Because I need you and you need me. That's the way family works. And if you've discovered this, families can be messy and imperfect and sometimes irritating. But also the blessing of family is joy, it's laughter, it's connection, it's loyalty, it's covenant, it's fighting for one another. And some of us, you come in this room and, and honestly you've been burnt by either poor family experience in your own life or sometimes damaging church experience in other churches. Let me tell you, even through the pain and the hurt and the fear that some of you carry around community and family, it is worth fighting for. It's worth fighting for, to fight for the genuine, to fight for what the Bible says church should really look like. I remember when uh, Carol was pregnant with our second child, um, at 16 weeks, the doctor diagnosed her with uh, a condition called preeclampsia which basically means very high blood pressure, kind of risk to the pregnancy. And the doctor prescribed her bed rest for the duration of the rest of the pregnancy at 16 weeks. At the time, we had a child under one years old. And so bed rest and a child under one years old, how many of you know those things don't often go together? And so, so she, what was incredible was the church just kicked into gear. And so every single day, someone from the church would come round and look after Lauren for a part of the day, like a volunteer, every single day. Every single day, someone cooked us a meal. Every week, someone from the church came around and cleaned our house. And that happened for five months every single day. Every single day. And probably literally helped save our son because Carol's able to rest in the way that she had to. The church, when it's working right, is breathtaking. Family is breathtaking. It is an incredible thing. See, you are born for connection with other people. And in fact, your own freedom cannot be found outside of community. You cannot find freedom as a lone desert island. Your freedom is connected with being in a family. 
And you know, there's a, there's a verse that we love to quote, and it's a brilliant verse, and it's in John chapter 8. And as Jesus said, listen, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We love that verse, don't we? Let's actually read the context that those words were spoken in. Here's John chapter 8. Jesus is talking to the religious Pharisees about freedom. And he says this to them, Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, well, We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. Therefore, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Do you see the connection that Jesus makes in that passage? He says, listen, Slavery equals having no permanent place in family. Freedom looks like being a son who belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Do you see that connection? Freedom is found in family, in community, in relationship with one another. That's why you don't join the church by signing on a dotted line. You join because your heart gets connected with other people. That's the way it works. That's church. Freedom is not, you know, in the words of the Rolling Stones, being free to do whatever I want, whenever, whatever old time. That's a recipe for loneliness. You only find freedom in family. And sometimes in family, you have to curtail your own sense of freedom for the good of the family. But that's what families do. And when you join a family, you're not free to do whatever you want any old time. Because actually, you want the good of the family, not just yourself. That's how families work. That's what it looks like. So it means sometimes I'm going to dial down my own need for freedom in order to serve my family. I'm going to sacrifice something because actually, I actually find my freedom in connection with other people. In serving them in love. These things are worth fighting for. And the truth is, you cannot be a biblical follower of Jesus without community. Most of the New Testament will not make any sense to you if you're not a part of a church. You know, there are over 100, they're called one anothering verses in the New Testament. Things like, you know, there's a whole bunch up here. Forgive one another. Bear with one another. Live at peace with one another. Don't grumble amongst one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We need a bit more kissing in church. <laughs> amen. I heard that amen. <laughs> you know, greet one another. Think the best of one another. I mean, they go on and on and on and on. How many of you know it's very different to follow the one another verses if there's no other person in your life? <laughs> You know, if someone doesn't occasionally offend you, who are you going to forgive? The question is not, will you get offended in church? The question is, what will you do when you do get offended at some point? When someone forgets to do something, or someone says something that just grates the wrong way, or when someone's a little bit irritable with you, or a little bit off, or says something that was sinful or selfish, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to leave? How are you going to do what the New Testament says? How are you going to forgive unless you stick in and do family? How are you going to do that? You cannot be a Christian and be a desert island. You are born for connection with other people. This is worth fighting for. 
And I would encourage you, if you are sitting here, and maybe you're one of those people you think, oh, yeah, that person is really getting up my nose. They're really getting on my nerves right now. You know, I'm just on the edge. You know, I'm just feeling, rah, 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 rah. If you're one of those people, read the New Testament. There's no perfect family. You're going to have to forgive. You're going to have to bear with one another. You're going to have to love beyond measure. You're going to have to think the best. But I tell you, it's worth it. Because... God-honoring families change history. And that's the story of the early church. Third thing that we see is this, is that there was a devotion to the centrality of Christ. And we just read that simple phrase, that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, that doesn't mean that it was the great Jerusalem bake-off. You know, they didn't have a particular love of baking. What that means is that breaking bread remembered what Jesus had done on the cross. They remembered the blood of Jesus. They remembered the body of Jesus and what he had done. It was front and center in their lives. Jesus was there all the time. They broke bread into, in, in one another's homes. And, you know, it was so central to who the church, early church was. And I think it's one of the essential reasons why the early church held together in the way that it did. Because you've got to understand, right from the off, the early church was a massively diverse multicultural people. Right from, the, right from its inception. You know, it wasn't 3,000 people of one mono-ethnic group that were all joined. They were from all over the place. This is what we read in Acts 2 verse 9. These are the guys that were giving their lives to Christ. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews, converts to Judaism, Cretans, not Cretans, and Arabs. Okay, This was the community that was being added. In other words, there were people from Africa and from Europe and from Asia and from Jerusalem. Right off the bat, this was a multicultural church. On that very first day, completely diverse. You had male, female sitting next to one another. You had slave owner and slave sitting next to one another. You had black, white sitting next to one another. That's what the early church looked like from the beginning. And I think the thing that held them together in their diversity was that the cross of Christ was right at the center all the time. Because ultimately, in this room, you know, we are never going to agree about everything. Because many of us come from completely different cultures to one another, don't we? You know, we've got different family experiences, different cultural experience, different cultural norms, things that we would do, things that we wouldn't do, things that are normal practice, things that aren't normal practice. We come with all sorts of diverse things. And culture comes with things that sometimes are negative, sometimes positive, sometimes neutral. But what happens when you come together is you say, we are coming together and the thing that unites us is Jesus. Here's, here's the one that unifies us with all our diversity, the God-honoring diversity. What unites us is Christ. It's front and center. You know, fundamentally, unity is not that we start to agree together more and more. <laughs> you know, very often, traditional church unity, we think in terms of, well, I'm over here, you're over there, and when we start to agree more and more, we will be united, and then one day we will be one, and Jesus will return, and glory will break out. That's what we think unity is, like that. We're just, we're just going to start to agree on everything, you know, when Jesus is going to return, hmm. 
what's going to happen to Israel? Hmm. You know, men and women? Hmm. You know, when we, when we gradually we agree and we hit the same sweet spot, Jesus will return and a hallelujah chorus will break out. That's what we think unity is. I want to suggest to you that's not the kind of unity that the Bible talks about. Yes, there are some fundamental core beliefs that cause us to hang together. But ultimately, it's our unity with Christ that makes us united with one another. I love, Bill Johnson has this illustration. He said, just imagine you're at the bottom of a triangle. He said, unity is not about me trying to come over to you. Unity starts by me actually focusing on Jesus and getting the mind of Christ in my life. And it's a bit like going up the two sides of the triangle. Eventually, as you, your mind starts to get molded by the truth of who Jesus is and what he thinks. You're going up, you're going up, you're going up, you're going up. Pretty soon, you look over the way, and you are sitting right next to your brother. And it's all because your oneness is in Christ. See, when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, John chapter 17, he says, Father, I pray that they would be one as we are one. He was not talking about this. He was talking about this. Father, as I am one with you, I am in the Father. The Father is in me. As we are one, may they be one with you as I am one with you. (laughs) How does unity happen? In Christ. That's what it looks like. And you know, that means when the enemy comes to you and just subtly begins to whisper in your ear, not sure you really fit here. You know exactly what to do with that lie. If you feel different, if you feel like a square peg and a round hole, it's not a reason to leave, it's a reason to stay. <laughs> if, if, we were all the, if we were all the same, how boring would that be? You know, to be honest, we probably all at one point or other feel like a square peg and a round hole. Think, do I really fit here? You know, are these my people? Do they really get me? I'm like this and they're like that. We probably all think that at some point. That's not an argument to leave. It's an argument to stay, to help shape us by who God's made you to be. We need you. Don't leave. Stay. Help shape this thing. Because it honors God in our diversity. It pleases God. It's such a beautiful thing. And they devoted themselves to the centrality of Christ. They were one in Christ. This is life in the early church. This is what normal Christianity looks like. Devotion to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread. And that is exactly what we're going to do right now. We're going to break bread. We're going to celebrate Jesus. But also just celebrate the diversity in this room. You know, celebrate with people who are different than you. And just celebrate the glory of that.